Hello, everyone, and welcome. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to you all joining from different time zones. And welcome to today's event hosted, hosted by ODI, uh, Sorting Out Subsidies, Navigating Fiscal Reform for Economic, Social and Environmental Transformation. My name is Ipek Gensu. I'm a Senior Research Fellow in the Climate and Sustainability Program at ODI. And um, it's really fantastic to have such a great panel of speakers and experts joining us today on this um, really interesting and timely topic. So we know that well-designed subsidies for production and consumption, including in the form of tax exemptions, uh, budgetary support, other forms of support, they can help reduce poverty, stimulate economic growth and transformation and mitigate environmental harm. They can improve affordability of fuel for low-income households and food, can boost productivity and can just be a, a driver for progressive um, and development objectives. But they can also, in the current way in which they've been designed, be very aggressive in ways that prop up support uh, for consumption by the wealthy rather than the meeting the essential needs of the poor. Um, they can favor inefficient production choices and they can result in economic consequences paid for by the taxpayers in a way that doesn't necessarily benefit large segments of the population or the planet. So against this backdrop, I think it's needless to say subsidies have been reviewed for, for decades, um, but especially in recent years, there's been a lot of research and practice going into navigating subsidy reform in a way that meets our development and climate and sustainability objectives while addressing the needs of those that are um, that are the poorest uh, segments of the population and generally supporting societies transform in the way that we would like to see. So today I have a fantastic panel of expert speakers, uh, starting with uh, Zira Kwagwe, who's um, the Nigerian focal person of the African Climate Foundation and uh, the Africa, uh, the Nigeria advisor of the Climate Emergency Collaboration Group. I have Ganesh Vignajaraja, the Professorial Fellow in Economics and Trade at Gateway House, uh, based in Mumbai, and also a Senior Research Associate at ODI. Uh, I have with us Defna Genjar, who is a Senior Energy Specialist at the Energy Subsidy Reform Facility, SMAP, uh, at World Bank. We've got Jody Keane, who is a Senior Research Fellow in the International Economic Development Programme at ODI. And last but not least, Lauri Vandenberg, who is the Global Public Finance Campaign Co-Manager at Oil Change International. So welcome all. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and we're really looking forward to hearing about your national and national perspectives and experience working on this critical topic for years. Uh, so we will kick off our um, our events today with a view on the national perspectives. So we will have uh, two panelists joining us today who are going to be telling us about the national perspectives from Nigeria and from Sri Lanka. Unfortunately, we had another colleague, Fabi Tumua, who was going to be joining us from the um, he's the executive director of the Institute for Essential Services Reform. Um, Indonesia, but he's unable to join. So I will say a few words about um, Indonesia uh, uh, and sending apologies on his behalf before we move on to our speakers. But just to let you know, uh, before we start the event, please feel free to use the Q&A box, which is under the, the event page, to 
share your thoughts and questions throughout the event. Feel free to also engage uh, in this discussion on Twitter, tagging ODI underscore global um, or on LinkedIn, including any hashtags that you feel are relevant, such as fiscal reform, subsidy reform, energy transition, just transition, climate change, and so on. Um, but do feel free to engage on this topic and share other resources, your own national perspectives and your experience on the issue. So moving on, starting off with the national perspectives, let me just say a few words uh, in terms of Indonesia, because we thought this was a really interesting and significant case study to mention. Um, unfortunately, our colleague is unable to join us to, to present the Indonesian perspective, but I think it's a really interesting example of subsidy reform, the kind of the, the progress and the, the successes of subsidy reform and, and some of the kind of challenges and keeping up uh, the, the, the progress and making sure subsidies are not rolled back. So many of you uh, may be aware that Indonesia was experiencing significant challenges with uh, subsidies in 2012, nearly 40% of the fuel subsidies went to the richest 10% of households, less than 1% went to the poorest 10% of the households. So you know, it was extremely regressive. And by 2014, the government spent three and a half times as much on fossil fuel subsidies than on social welfare uh, and twice as much as on capital investments. So really, they were increasingly a bigger and bigger chunk of the uh, government budgets. And when oil prices rose sharply, they reached about 24% of government expenditure back in 2005. So under budgetary pressures, which is, you know, we might be talking about this today, it's one of the um, one of the main reasons that comes up. The government ends up increasing and it did end up increasing energy prices by 29 percent in March 20, 2005 um, in Indonesia. And this ended up saving them about four and a half billion dollars um, that that uh, earlier that year. And then again in October by 114 percent, which ended up saving $10 billion. So this is just to show you that the kind of size of the government budget that goes to continuing to support subsidies. But what Indonesia managed to make progress on was that when they were raising energy prices to avoid public backlash, they coupled subsidy reforms with a bundle of spending targeted at the poor, which included cash transfers, health insurance, financial assistance for students, and, um, and loans, low interest loans for small businesses. So, and in 2014, the government was able to remove the subsidy on petrol um, and gave diesel a smaller subsidy, which was targeted, uh, tied to the market price. So, Indonesia was really able to make advances, but then there were some challenges um, in kind of keeping up the, the subsidy reform, because when times get tough, it's very easy to roll subsidies back in. So, just with that backdrop, with that example of Indonesia, which unfortunately our Indonesian colleague Fabi Tobiwa was unable to tell us more about, I just wanted to kind of give a bit of a flavor of one country's national perspective and success in, in subsidy reform. Uh, but let me move on to welcome our first panelist, Zira Kwaghe, who will talk about the Nigerian perspective on subsidies. Zira is the Nigeria focal person of the African Climate Foundation and the Nigeria advisor for the Climate Emergency Collaboration Group. He's an economic researcher uh, with expertise in climate and energy policy. And is, in his current role, Zira supports the implementation of Nigeria's Climate Change Act through the National Council on Climate Change. 
He previously worked at Quadrature Climate Foundation, uh, managing their energy transition portfolio. So over to you, Zira. Uh, please do tell us about some of the experience in Nigeria on subsidy and subsidy reform. In particular, in Nigeria, there is a strong understanding, which our research ODI shows as well, that, there is, that subsidies are simply part of the social contract. As an oil and gas producer, you know, people expect subsidies to be given um, to support their consumption of fossil fuels. So what are some of the challenges and opportunities in Nigeria at the moment and in recent years, and what can we learn? Uh, thank you very much, Ipek. I think you've um, you've asked a really interesting and important question on the social contracts around subsidies, and I'll just take a little bit of a historical um, view on the on your question. So Nigeria had its first major oil boom in the seventies, and since then, um, it's fair to say that most Nigerians felt that cheap petrol was the main benefit they were getting from. Nigeria's oil and gas wealth. Um, but, uh, but since you asked about the opportunities around that social contract, I would say that that is changing, um, especially since the 2010s. And it's changing for two factors. The first is that there's a growing middle class and an increased recognition that, um, that subsidies have become a major drain on, on Nigeria's public resources. For, like in 2022, for example, about 20% of government's total um, uh, expenditure went towards subsidies. And 30% of the amount that was budgeted for, um, in, in terms of revenue um, went towards subsidies. So, so that's a huge and a major source of, um, source of um, financial expenditure that needs to be looked at. Um, to remove subsidies, there needs to be a clear uh, alternative being provided and communicated properly by the government. And this is even more important in countries like Nigeria where public trust tends to be low. Um, so to get it um, successfully implemented, you need to really uh, communicate a clear alternative. So if you take out subsidies, what do you plan to spend the money on? Um, so I will talk a little bit about the, the previous attempts um, to highlight some of the lessons learned. And in, you know, in, in the past few years, there have been three major attempts to remove subsidies. The first was in 2012, the second in 2016, and then the most recent one in 2020. So these are the three most recent ones that I would, um, that I would discuss. And there are two key factors that, um, you know, we can look at to understand the key lessons to learn. The first is on the magnitude of the price change when subsidies are removed. So in 2012, when subsidy removal led to uh, widespread protests around Nigeria, we saw that there was a 120% increase in the, in the price of, of petrol. And that is because of the direct proportion that subsidy payments has with oil prices. So the higher oil prices are, the more subsidies government have to, um, governments have to pay. Um, in the case of Nigeria, when oil is less than, when the global price of oil is less than $40 per barrel, there's essentially no subsidy. But as soon as it goes above $40 per barrel, then the subsidy the government pays increases in proportion to, 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 to the oil price. Uh, so fast forward to 2016, um, when subsidies again 
uh, was phased out by the current administration, there was a 60% increase in the pump price, but we did not see that um, the extent of world of you know widespread protests uh, as compared to the 2012 um, subsidy removal because of the fact that there was existing scarcity already, and the jump was not you know more than a, more than 100%. So. It, it, it shows us that, you know, the magnitude can actually affect the likelihood of success of subsidy removal. Then the most recent one in 2020, oil prices were around $40 per barrel in the wake of, you know, the COVID oil price shock and, and uh, another global market shocks that, that happened in early 2020. And at, at low oil prices, like I mentioned earlier, there was really no increase in the in the pump price for petrol so for that reason you know it was successfully done at the time but then later reversed when when oil prices went above 70. so so i i guess the summary of the first lesson is the magnitude of the price change then quickly on the second factor on this course is the political capital and public trust around um, subsidy removal so the first factor I mentioned on managing the price change is mainly affected by external factors that are not, you know, necessarily controlled by Nigeria or not controlled by Nigeria really. But the second factor, which is the political capital and public trust, is a more domestic issue. And um, when political capital and public trust is low, the the likelihood of success of subsidy removal or subsidy phase outs tends to be low, at least from the previous attempts that we've seen. And we've seen a trend that governments tend to remove subsidies either at the start of the administration or towards the end. So at the start of the administration, because you have maybe three, four years to recover, recover public trust and recover legitimacy and find ways to um, you know, mitigate some of the impacts of subsidy removal on the poorest. Um, or at the end, because you don't really, you know, you're, you've, you can exhaust your political capital knowing that you're already out of, um, you know, going out of government. So the timing is really important. And some of this, some of the, you know, the, the, the factors that determine timing can be internal or external. Um, but I think it's really critical to understand the context in which some of these subsidy removal decisions are made. Um, so finally, I'll just say that they still need to build evidence to uh, promote the understanding that, you know, there are alternatives and better design of some of the social reinvestment programs would really help in, in mitigating the negative impacts um, of subsidy removal. Uh, I think I'll stop here for now, Ipet. Thank you very much, Sarah. That was a very concise uh, summary of some of the essential elements of the challenges and the opportunities around um, reform. And I will come back to you with some follow-up questions. But let me now move on to our second panelist, Ganesh um, Vignaraja, who is Professorial Fellow in Economics and Trade at Gateway House, based in Mumbai. And he's also a Senior Research Associate at ODI. He's the former Director of Research at the ADB Institute in Tokyo and a member of the Central Bank Committee on Monetary Policy and 
financial stability um, in Sri Lanka. So it's fantastic to have you join us, Ganesh. Um, and I do want to, you have a wealth of experience um, across different geographies, but we do want to ask you about the experience in Sri Lanka today, especially about navigating subsidy reform in an economic and financial crisis. Because um, I imagine most Sri Lankans anticipate major changes in spending and investment as a result as a result of the current economic um, challenges about the default and debt restructuring. Does that offer an opportunity to target spending in a way that is more productive and inclusive, sustainable and so on? Or does it kind of close down fiscal space too much um, for subsidies, even for the poorest? Um, and is there a bit of a short termism uh, in the picture? Is it not possible to pivot to a longer term strategy of growth and development? Thank you uh, very much, uh, Ipek, and to colleagues at ODI for having me here. Um, let me talk about Sri Lanka in this crisis period. And I want to sort of make four uh, broad points, uh, which, which I think will be useful for the audience. The first is that you know, Sri Lanka, uh, like this Nigerian case, um, was really seen as a successful case of using subsidies to reduce poverty, uh, probably more so in Sri Lanka. It's a, widely cited case of a basic need success story as early as the late 1970s uh, for a low income country that is. And uh, $2.15 a day poverty fell significantly from some 17% in 1985 to about 1% 1 in 2019. And this is really due to trickle down uh, growth theory after opening up uh, Sri Lanka to trade and investment in 1977, uh, some of the poverty program, and then a vast raft of subsidies, um, uh, which are enviable by developing countries. We have free health and education, uh, probably better than the British model, which we tried to emulate today for the entire population. We have uh, fuel subsidies, fertilizer subsidies for farmers, free school meals, uh, utility subsidies, and so on. Uh, these were very politically popular and governments got elected on promising more subsidies. Um, and these were financed by tax revenue and concessional aid and foreign borrowing. But there were very problems that came around uh, in the 2000s. The second point I want to make is, is really around the economic crisis that we uh, face. And Sri Lanka uh, in 2022, 2023 uh, has been forced into reform uh, of these subsidies and other measures. Uh, the debt default occurred last year in 2022, April. Um, and mismanagement was one big part of it, uh, as well as infrastructure debt to China. Now, uh, the, the economy, uh, you know, contracted by 8% last year, and uh, there is a significant reversal of poverty and rising child malnutrition. And, and this is in a case of a country that used to be a basic need success story. Uh, now, reform of subsidies are a major uh, factor in this IMF program that we just concluded. Um, and uh, utility pricing and fuel subsidies are the major element. And there is also pressure to reduce bloated public expenditure and, and the universal sort of healthcare bit. Um, now, we've had in this crisis period in the last two years, probably three attempts at reforming these subsidies. Uh, the first one is uh, kind of a very famous example of a disastrous uh, switch of the fertilizer subsidy mix. Uh, we tried overnight a couple of years ago to switch from chemical to organic fertilizers without preparing farmers. And, uh, you know, there was no local supply of organics. 
So it all had to come from imports. It, in fact, uh, raised uh, imports significantly. And uh, far worse, there was a big fall in agricultural output and food insecurity for the population, more food insecurity for the population during a crisis. The second one um, was probably partially successful, which is fuel price uh, uh, subsidy reform and utility price reform. We kept uh, prices artificially low for utilities and fuel uh, while you know, market conditions fluctuated. Uh, and this was partly because much of our electricity comes from fossil fuels and uh, the public have enjoyed also uh, you know, subsidized transport for some time. This probably cost uh, 3 billion or so a year according to some estimates. Um, now, in anticipation of this IMF program, uh, which came this year, Sri Lanka uh, significantly raised utility and fuel prices to more realistic levels and also in introduced a QR fuel rationing system. Uh, this has had mixed outcomes. This sudden change in fuel and utility prices has hurt the poor in a situation where we also have 60 to 70 percent inflation and has drawn widespread public protests against this kind of uh, reform. Um, we also find it's very difficult to provide targeted relief particularly on utilities to the poor. Um, but the QR code system of fuel rationing, uh, which considers income and the type of vehicle, uh, was broadly a success and has got rid of the black market and three-mile-long petrol queues. Um, uh, th by the way, there's also subsidies on uh, solar and rooftop uh, solar and green energy, uh, which has been somewhat successful. The third kind of reform is really ongoing reform of the free universal health system, uh, but means testing and targeting the poor has been challenging. So the government is proposing having some partial reform where you have uh, government hospitals uh, with fee-paying wards alongside the public wards and charges for some services. I guess as we move towards uh, year one end of this IMF program, it just started, uh, we will get more discussion about uh, more subsidy reform. Uh, and then I hope a comprehensive structural reform program in year two that is 2024 and 2025, year three, and subsidies uh, will be looked at more comprehensive risk of fiscal balance. So there are three lessons uh, really from Sri Lanka that I think are more interesting uh, for everyone here. The first is that redistribution based on multiple subsidy services without growth might give some basic needs for some time and enviable social indicators, but tepid growth and macroeconomic imbalances persistently will come back to bite you and, and bring painful adjustment at some point. And the debt in um, economic crisis in Sri Lanka is, 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 a, is, a, is a point uh, to discuss. Um, we live beyond our means for many years. And when shocks come, it really hits you. The second point is that the economic crisis may be an opportunity to reform uh, subsidies and provide better targeting. But these are very difficult to do um, in a crisis situation particularly when you have IMF austerity and you know, inflation of 60 to 80% and a contracting economy uh, and public protests can be there, which are very difficult to manage. So uh, the third point really, and the third lesson is that uh, it's better to implement uh, subsidy reform in normal times uh, where you have the fiscal room and to consult the public about this and to have a credible system of means targeting uh, for the poor. I hope this was useful, Ipek. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much, Ganesh. Yes, absolutely. Really interesting to hear Sri Lanka's perspective. And I think this is the challenging thing, right? Subsidy reform has often come at a time of crisis, but that's not the most sort of sustainable and thought through way of reforming subsidies um, because there's 
already various other challenges that you're you're having to grapple with, plus the the level of public discontentment with the you know the general economic circumstances and and the hardship, and on top of that, you're you're kind of Im- imposing these huge reforms. It's much better to do it at a time when the timing and the political will allows there, as, as Zira was saying, for there to be a, some much more calm and reasoned thinking. But to do that, to not have those external pressures, you need to have really strong political will um, and uh, sort of political parties and movements that are that are trying to build support for the, the reform and are able to make sure it's successful in the long term. I just wondered if either of you want to come back on, on that dilemma of, you know, the, the crisis often paving the way for needed, much needed reform on this front, but actually a much better time being, um, as, as you were saying, Ganesh, uh, sort of a, a calmer time when, when these decisions can be made uh, with much more foresight and, um, and the time taken. How do we solve that dilemma? Um, I'm not sure I have a solution, but I think uh, I can describe the opportunity a little bit uh, better um, or expand on the opportunity that I highlighted earlier on. So when oil, when there was an oil price shock um, around the early COVID months, um, Nigeria took advantage of that sort of external challenge um, to remove subsidies and implement said what we described as a modulated pricing regime where moving forward the petroleum product regulatory agency uh, had a template that uh, you know set the price for petroleum products on, uh, on a monthly basis so i think it's an it's it's one of those situations where uh, a major global challenge can create an opportunity for reform that then can be taken forward even past the the period of of um, of crisis. Thank you, Zira. And actually, we have a related question for you from the audience, which is um, to you know share some more insights on uh, the ideal timings, but also the building the trust and the public's expectations. Uh, as you were saying, that there are some some sort of recipes to success, which is, as you were mentioning in your presentation earlier on, uh, making sure that the changes are incremental um, and and making sure that they happen at usually at the beginning or towards the end of, um, of, of a government's term in, in office. But do you think there's anything that more broadly that, that can be done around kind of building the trust, especially with a younger group of voters who are much more aware of some of the circumstances, some of the economic challenges and um, and environmental challenges around subsidies? Do you see potential? Yes, uh, as with any major government policy or any government policy really, I think public trust is really important and it's, it really lies at the foundation of um, public sector decision-making. Once public trust is weak, everything, you know, is, is it's difficult to implement, it's difficult to design, it's difficult to you know, get good consensus um, within the country. So I would say if we're talking about a recipe, public trust is essential and at the base of it. Then um, the next step would then be uh, consultation. Um, and, and the previous speaker highlighted that as a, as a key element in, in Sri Lanka's case. 
where you need to get the buy-in of the key stakeholders and you need to get the buy-in of some of the segments of society that are likely to push back. So in Nigeria's case, the labor unions are usually the the voice of the, or they are the voice of the masses and they tend to be, you know, the strongest resistors to any plan to remove subsidies. So early consultation with some of these groups to explain the benefits, to explain that even on a socioeconomic basis, you know, the people that are impacted are likely to gain more from subsidy removal. That communication is really important. And that was missing really in the, 2015, in the 2012 removal. Um, but I think the government learned that lesson and did better in 2016 and in 2020. So that's the second. So first being public trust, second being consultation. And then the third being um, a clear plan for reinvestment. I think that's an, that's an element that with, if you can get these first two right, then it's easier to communicate a social investment program and you know you have the trust of people that you would actually manage it properly. But when the public trust is weak, even if you design the best social investment program on paper or best social um, or best subsidy reinvestment program on paper, um, the, the, the lack of public trust will, will reduce the chances of success. So in summary, I'll just say public trust, um, uh, public trust being the foundation, consultation being the next layer, and then redesigning, you know, how to reinvest the subsidy funds. Thank you very much, Zira. I think that's an excellent segue to our uh, second set of panelists where we'll be talking about some of the international perspectives and experiences, uh, and we can ask them a little bit about how these resonate with their with their experience working across different countries and the international fora. So with that, let me welcome our third panelist, Defne Genjar, who is a senior energy specialist um, at the Energy Subsidy Reform Facility, SMAP, at the World Bank. Um, prior to that, she worked in the, the bank's energy and extractives global practice in the South Asia region, focusing on energy sector reform, policy, regulation, energy efficiency, um, and the agriculture water energy nexus uh, in countries including India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. And prior to that, she worked in the East Asia and Pacific region, also focusing on energy efficiency, renewables, electrification, um, and other energy-related key topics. So she um, has also previously worked for an energy regulatory agency and a private international energy um, is a major with an international policy think tank in Washington, D.C. So a fantastic wealth of experience across the energy sector, but spending um, the sort of latter part of her career, especially focusing on energy subsidy reform. So Defna, I wanted to ask you, you know, also hearing from some of the experiences uh, from Zira and Ganesh, um, on, on Nigeria's and Sri Lanka's attempts, you know, MDBs, including the World Bank, have been very strong advocates of reforming these exclusionary, regressive and inefficient and environmentally harmful subsidies. But drawing on decades of work, more and more, they're starting to emphasize the sort of softer dimensions of reform, you know, to, to, to complement these very technical aspects. There are these really key issues around um, enabling reforms that can be implemented politically viably and sustained in reality. So what are some of the insights that have emerged from SMAP's wealth of experience uh, from the Energy Subsidy Reform Facility, um, where you've been supporting, I think, over 65 countries 
over the years. How can governments take into account these political economy dimensions, the timing, the pressures, and so on? Um, and how can they design reform that's going to actually improve people's living standards and be sustainable? Thank you, Peck, and thank you for having me and the ODI team. Um, I hope you can hear me well. Um, so I'm so happy to be here and be with a panel that is um, this uh, such with such diverse expertise. So let me just maybe take a moment to introduce what SMAP stands for. So those of you that may not familiar, be familiar with our acronym, it's a multi-donor technical assistance program hosted by the World Bank whose focus is to support developing country governments in their efforts in sustainable energy transitions and poverty reduction and economic growth. So as part of this broader program, the Energy Subsidy Reform Facility focuses on supporting our client, what we call our client counterparts, our governments, in designing energy subsidy reforms. And since the facility was established in 2013, as Ipek mentioned, we have uh, supported over 65 countries with technical assistance grants amounting to over $25 million to do the technical work that helps them get there. And as is evident from already from the commentary, energy subsidy reforms remain a key development issue. And the energy crisis of 2022 made it even more obvious that it's a challenge that for developed and developing countries alike, as governments rush to uh, protect their households and firms from the impacts of the energy commodity price shocks. And in the aftermath of the crisis, now our colleagues at the IEA and OECD estimate that fossil fuel subsidies have exceeded $1 trillion. And this is in stark contrast to all the other development goals that need to be funded. And so in, we talked about it. In addition to contributing to in excessive use of fossil fuels that harm the local environment and global climate, fossil fuel subsidies are also regressive and costly. They put significant fiscal pressures on governments and divert money away from other development priorities, especially funds that could be used for human development, growth and pro-poor pub oriented public spending. In fact, like Ipek mentioned, in many countries, we find that government spending on energy subsidies exceeds the spending for social assistance. So Ipek, to answer your question about the softer dimensions that we've been focusing on and these dimensions beyond the foundational technical work that still needs to be done in the energy sector and fiscal policy domains around developing fuel price increase trajectories or pass-through formulas, or updating tariff methodologies or having price adjustment schedules or the technical work that needs to be done. We have been increasingly focusing on the softer aspects like you mentioned, and this draws on experience from international our work in different countries and also insights from international literature in this space. And let me just highlight two dimensions for now, and we can go into the depth of these later. One is the understanding of the political economy context already Zira and Ganesh really touched upon this and going into the deeper detail, understanding the distributional impacts of potential reform options and not going in with one option is what's really important, assessing the options and potential impacts and finding workable options to mitigate, mitigate these impacts. So like we talked about, and Zira really hinted at this very nicely, um, that there are multiple reasons why the most technically sound reform initiatives can fail even before reaching implementation stage, despite the obvious fiscal distributional distortive impacts across the economy. This is because if they're not suitable for the economy, political economy context at a given time, these reforms do not move forward. And 
the previous interventions touched upon it, so I'll just touch some of the touch upon some of the reasons. Firstly, many people or some people, some of the poor please, really need affordable energy. Of course, then there's the debate of whether the best way of giving them affordable energy is through universal price subsidies. But in other cases, those who do not need them end up getting them and they become ac accustomed to energy subsidies over time. And then there, are, in many countries, there are powerful, well-organized vested interests who benefit from that, that they don't want to let them go. And in other contexts, subsidies are seen as part of a social contract that, again, Zira touched upon. Oftentimes, low-cost energy, low energy or subsidies are the only tangible things people get from the state. And honestly, in other cases, people don't even know that they are receiving subsidies, so there's no incentive to change. And even when the citizens are aware of subsidies, they don't always know the opportunity costs. So this hints at the importance of communicating these impacts. They don't, people don't know what else could have been done with the money that's being spent on keeping the cost of gasoline low. Could they have gotten better roads, schools, hospitals, or extra cash in their pockets? So overall, international experience shows that instead of universal price subsidies for consumption of fossil fuels and electricity, there are better ways of protecting the vulnerable and poor people without creating these distortions and the negative impacts that we talked about. But these reforms to deliver a meaningful solution require hard work, detailed pre preparation, sustained political commitment and stakeholder engagement and communication like we talked about. This is why at SMAP we've been focusing on supporting our government counterparts who, who have the wish to reform and supporting designing reforms that would be fit for their context makes sense for them, that can be implemented, and that draws on international practice where available. So, as I said, the critical precondition of understanding political economy dynamics is the assessment of distributional impacts of subsidies and the reform. And to th for this, you need to use both quantitative and qualitative approaches as the context makes possible due to with the data and uh, different approaches that are available. So these assessments can really shed light on who currently benefits from these subsidies, who stands to gain or lose, and then using these underlying analysis to inform a political economy analysis. So not just going in there assuming positions or where stakeholders stand, really using data and analysis to then use it as a form of meaningful engagement between the government and the policymakers and these key stakeholders and helping build supportive coalitions and Different groups were mentioned. For instance, Ipek, you hinted at a newer emerging group, the climate conscious youth, but also there was that stand to gain from it and what the reform alternatives are and offering also tangible benefits. And I'll get to, get to this in a minute, but both uh, Ganesh and Zira also mentioned the importance of offering tangible alternatives. Because what we find in our research is that a review of recent stakeholder surveys conducted in different countries indicates that citizens are not invariably opposed to price reform. And they, they, they can view energy price reform as more acceptable if they receive a tangible benefit, be it through cash transfers or receiving more efficient appliances or better energy services or other public spending that benefits them and their families. So this is very important. Engaging stakeholders in a meaningful way, which means not a one-way communication, but a two-way engagement and understanding their concerns and trying to address them through the reform scope is really important. And communicating clearly to help build trust, acceptance, and support for reform is very important. So a follow-on thought is about the mitigation of the impacts. One, the, one of the most tangible ways is, the, is to build mitigation measures into the design of the reform itself instead of being an afterthought. 
And over the past several decades, there's been a growing recognition on the role of targeted cash transfers to replace universal price subsidies. And many countries around the world have been adopting them. These are actually increasingly being used in our developing country context, but also in the uh, OECD countries. And a in fact, a recent uh, multi-country review that we, our colleagues at the World Bank Social Protection and Jobs Global Practice uh, in collaboration with ESMAP carried out, they did a stock-taking review of energy subsidy reform uh, and social protection initiatives that were carried out together. And they looked at about a, over a sample of 20 reform initiatives undertaken since the mid-1990s where cash transfers accompanied energy subsidy reform. And what they found is that Overall, these cash transfer mechanisms and use of cash transfers in energy subsidy reform really helps facilitate the transition to, a, to the new regime. And they were help, helpful in enabling acceptance of implementation of the reform, particularly in early stages. And then also in the end, ultimately, majority of the reforms explored ultimately generated net fiscal savings. This is very important, even after offering cash transfers. So what you do with the potential fiscal savings really matters. And in the case of these cash transfers we looked at, um, reform design and approaches changed over time. The coverage of the mechanisms changed, delivery mechanisms changed, and targeting it were improved over time. And I'll be happy to go into these de in greater detail later. But um, a few examples that are worth highlighting are, for instance, the Dominican Republic's multi-year reform efforts in the energy subsidy reform and using the Solidaridad, Bonagas, and Bonolus schemes and inter integrating over time. And then another good example is um, Jordan's 2012 fuel subsidy reform, where a carefully timed cash compensation effort preceded a price increase. And of course, a good, often cited good practice example is Ukraine's energy subsidy reform effort of 2014-16, where prices were increased at some point, gas tariffs were increased fourfold, if I'm not mistaken, um, and uh, district heating tariffs were increased to, to, I think, twofold. But this was accompanied by a very inclusive, broad-based cash transfer program to the housing and utilities program, and that really facilitated the transition and al allowed the sector to come to cost recovery gradually. So these experiences highlight the importance of leveraging existing social protection mechanisms to complement reform and using practical delivery mechanisms and improving targeting over time. So IPEC, to conclude, um, most of the importance of these softer aspects is increasingly being recognized both by the academia and practitioners in the development field and also think tanks. So, and we are seeing also in our part at SMAP that we have tried to do multiple things, both through issue uh, producing, delivering good practice notes that focus on these aspects of the distributional impacts of reform using quantitative and qualitative methods about approaches to political economy assessments and designing communications campaigns to help support the governments in this effort. In addition, a lot of our country grants have undertaken analysis on all of these dimensions and the distributional impacts over time. And in fact, I think of, of our $25 million of grants that I mentioned, these components have been covered in one form and another by our clients based on the demand from the government agencies. So I hope I was able to answer your question and thank you again. Thank you very much, Defna. That was really a wealth of experience um, and information that you shared with us. And I think my main takeaway is that one size absolutely does not fit all. I think every country, um, 
and at, at any given time have a different set of political priorities and circumstances. And these reform processes have to absolutely assess the situation, the role of different stakeholders, um, the different distributional impacts of reform, the different scenarios, as you were saying, to put options in front of people um, and, and work through in a very kind of collaborative way with the different stakeholders and not assume uh, what the impacts will be or the different positions will be of the different parties that, that you're engaging and will be impacted by reform. Um, so really a wealth of experience there. Um, and we will come back to it in our discussion. But for now, I would like to slightly pivot from our um, discussion so far, which is mainly focused on energy subsidies and fuel subsidies and the country examples to tackle a different form of subsidy. And as we know, subsidies are much broader um, than just energy subsidies. Uh, and for that, I will bring in my colleague Jody Keane, who's a senior research fellow in the International Economic Development Program at ODI. Um, she leads uh, our work on trade, climate and development, the, the nexus of trade, climate and development. Previously, Jody was an economic advisor uh, within the Trade, Oceans and Natural Resources Directorate of the Commonwealth Secretariat, uh, where she had the responsibility for global advocacy on emerging trade issues and supporting the global uh, architecture, which included in, in relation to addressing harmful fishing subsidies, uh, a, an issue of critical interest um, to so many small island developing states and least developed uh, countries, LDCs. And since joining us at ODI, she's convened uh, the LDC uh, trade and climate negotiators to explore cross-cutting thematic issues at the climate and trade nexus. So um, I think with this introduction, uh, I, I would like to ask Jody a little bit about her um, perspective on the World Trade Organization, the WTO, and the recent announcement of a landmark agreement around fishing subsidies, because the international fora, such as the WTO, have been one of the fora where we can take forward subsidy reform, but there have been a lot of challenges for years. So please do tell us about this breakthrough, what you think the WTO's achievements have been on, on moving this big um, sort of task along to get this agreement, but, and what's its capacity to enforce its agreement? Um, do you think we might see similar progress on environmentally harmful food or energy subsidies or any other area? What are some of the pros and cons of, of working the, with the beasts of the, such um, international um, organizations? Thank you very much, Ipek, and thank you also to all of the, the previous speakers. It's been really a really enriching um, discussion. So I'm going to briefly just outline some of the history. Um, so thinking about how we reach this landmark agreement, why it is a landmark agreement, and then I'm going to reflect um, in terms of what this agreement means and um, thinking about um, clean energy subsidies, fossil fuel, fossil fuel subsidies, and so on. Um, so just in brief, we've known that there are just there's been this big gap in relation to the international trade architecture and this need to address harmful fishery subsidies for a very long time. So it's taken more than 20 years to reach agreement at the WTO. And all the while, you know, subs subsidies have been provided. It's been estimated that out of a total of 35 billion subsidies each year to the fishery sector, around 22 billion of those are, are harmful. So 
all the while we've had these subsidies being provided. And we're at a situation now where around 90% of global fish stocks are either fully, um, are, are now classified as kind of being fully overfished. They're, they're, they're reaching, we're reaching that sustainable limit. So um, the kind of urgency of, of addressing harmful fishery subsidies is it's raised, it's, it's kind of raised up the international agenda you know it was part of the doha development round of negotiations it was put on the agenda there um, back in 2001 but of course those discussions broke down in 2007 and then subsequently the sustainable development goals which of course are uh, were agreed by heads of government they then provided a kind of new focus and and essentially the mandate for trade ministers to really take action on this front because you have a goal there SDG goal 14 which is life below water and a specific target um, was referred to, got this target 14.6 by 2020 to prohibit certain forms of fishery subsidies, which contribute to overcapacity and overfishing, eliminate subsidies that contribute to illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing, and to refrain from introducing any new such, such subsidies, all the same time, all at the same time as recognising the need for special and differential treatment for, for least developed countries and developing countries more broadly. So the SDGs agreed in 2015 and then they came into effect in 2016. These really helped to raise the profile um, of this need to address harmful fisheries subsidies because they are, you know, artisanal fishing is of critical importance to, if you look at countries um, like Senegal, for example, a number of least developed countries, small island um, developing states, it's really of critical importance. So, you know, the need to address the fact that you have subsidized fleets traveling vast amounts of of distance hoovering up um, fishery stocks you know there's a need to address those subsidies that are enabling those fleets um, to do that so since the sdgs there was some progress made um, at the uh, 11th wto ministerial but the breakthrough really came in june 2020 2022 um, as part of the so-called Geneva package where agreement on fisheries subsidies was agreed. However, I would urge some caution there um, because although the agreement covers some aspects of, of SDG, that target 14.6 I mentioned, it doesn't cover all. So there is still a big gap in terms of a more direct rule that would help to prohibit subsidies that contribute to overcapacity and overfishing. And there, the sorts of subsidies that we're talking about are things like subsidies for fuel, for example. So there's still a really big gap. So we're at the situation now where there are closed meetings ongoing in preparation for MC30. So the text that was agreed in June 2022, it was recognised that it was not complete. So a compromise was made that negotiations would continue with a view to securing agreement by MC13. Um, and the agreement itself doesn't come into effect until around two thirds, up to two thirds of the WTO membership have essentially um, submitted their um, acceptance of the agreement. And there's a specific legal term that's used for that. At the moment, I think there's only around three um, out of the, the total number of um, WTO members that have actually submitted that. So, so. Although it's a landmark agreement, it's still not a, a com comprehensive agreement. There's still this big gap, this more direct rule that I mentioned that that is essentially uh, missing. But in terms of what was agreed, um, there was agreement reached on the need to address subsidies that contribute to illegal, unreported un and unregulated fishing. 
Um, there's a peace clause there, so it enables developing countries to um, to have some flexibility in terms of providing subsidies for their own EEZ, their exclusive exclusive economic zones for some period of time. Um, agreement was reached on subsidies for fishing and fishing relating activities regarding overfished stocks as well. Um, but again, there's a peace clause there. Um, so developing countries, again, they can't be challenged with, within their own EEZs for a period of time after entry of into force of, of the agreement. And then finally, um, the third area that was reached was regards to other subsidies. And this was really trying to tackle the issues with regards to the high seas, which fall out of the jurisdiction of, of, of any um, member state. So essentially this, this, this last target, which targets other subsidies, including those provided to fishing on the unregulated high seas, to reflagged vessels and to fishing on unassessed stocks. Essentially, this part of the text tries to target those cases where there is essentially no fisheries management in place. So there's, there's no way of knowing um, that the stocks there are, are overfished or not. Therefore, governments are, are um, being prohibited from providing um, fishery subsidies for those sorts of activities. Um, finally, the agreement does provide for uh, transparency. There's a new kind of notification system there included. And there's also support for implementation for capacity constrained countries. And this is on, along similar lines as we've seen the WTO has been progressing over time. We've seen a similar approach with the trade facilitation agreement there as well. Um, so I would say that, yes, it is a, it's certainly a landmark agreement in the fact that it's the first to really to to refine the rules so that they take into account environmental sustainability as well. Because I think we, we were at a point where the kind of original text, the original framework of, of GATT, the, the, the agreement on um, subsidies and countervailing measures of the WTO, you know, these, these agreements are really about trying to prevent beggar thy neighbour policies, but they haven't in any way taken account of the environment and the fact that, you know, we're reaching the limit of um, of, of um, sustainable fish stocks. And um, you could say it in, in, case, in the case of fossil fuels as well. Um, so in that sense, you know, there are some optimists um, if we think about the, the kind of um, reform of, of the WTO and the kind of new leadership that, that is in place. There are optimists there that say that this agreement and the text and the process can provide lessons for addressing fossil fuel subsidies, for example. It provides um, some substantive kind of lessons there in terms of the actual approach to identifying subsidies. So the fact that it's used in an effects-based approach indicates that a similar approach could be used for fossil fuel subsidies. So there's certainly, you know, this learning process that, that members have, have been on this journey and they're still on this journey because you know as I said they, we're still waiting for a comprehensive um text so so I would say that there's there is optimism there's room for optimism there um however there's there's also those that say um that are not so optimistic and say look even on the under the existing rules you know you've had countries like China of course not playing by the rules for some time and we've now got these um, really big packages that have been introduced um, by the US and, and the EU and um, that are also breaking the existing rules on subsidies this is all this is all part of the current um, kind of 
um, discourse now um, uh, around the WTO. So I think it begs the question, really, is the institution strong enough? Um, are, are members willing, you know, willing to engage? Are they willing to, to go down and, and, and go down this route um, to use this, this learning from the fisheries um, text and agreement the process to move into to other areas? I think you've certainly got some like-minded groups of, of countries um, that are engaging on plurilateral discussions to address trade and environmental sustainability sustainability issues. There's a kind of subgroup there on that's looking at fossil fuel subsidies as well. Um, but I think it's going to take a lot of time, a lot of resources, a lot of effort, and we're probably going to need the, the inputs from a lot of other um, agencies there as well. Um, you know, there's the fact that very many small island developing states, least developed countries, I think it's that capacity side. They, they want to retain their policy space so that they have the policy space to develop their own fleets in the future to, to um, make uh, the, the best use that they can of their own exclusive economic zone. So they want to keep that policy space. But at the same time, I think there's a need for assistance so that they're um, that, that countries are more fully aware of the types of subsidies that they are providing and whether these may be classified as harmful or, or non, non-harmful. So I think there's certainly um, a lot more work to be done um, in that area. And I'll wrap up there, um, Ipek. I hope that's been um, helpful for you. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Jodie. Um, and it's really fascinating to have um, both the background on on the need for um, uh, such an agreement on uh, fishery subsidies, but also the, the process and and some of the challenges, some of the opportunities, you know, the reasons to celebrate the agreement that such a landmark agreement was reached, but also what it really means in practice uh, around its enforceability, um, around how comprehensive the rules are, uh, and and you know what what to do when when rules are broken and so on, and this, and also from the perspective of um, some of the kind of developing countries, the small island developing states and least developed countries um, that need a lot of support to to make sure that this this agreement um, is in their favour. Um, let me uh, use that as an opportunity to segue to another uh, related agreement and ask our panelist Larry van der Berg to, to tell us a bit more about it, which is um, around fossil fuel subsidies um, in the UNFCCC and the Glasgow uh, Agreement, which Larry will tell us a bit about. Um, but before that, let me introduce Larry, who used to be a former colleague at uh, with us at ODI, um, and she's now the Global Public Finance Co-Manager um, at Oil Change International uh, NGO. Uh, her work focuses on ensuring a just transition through um, moving governments away and financial institutions away from continued financing um, and uh, permitting the expansion of oil and gas in particular. She previously worked um, uh, at Friends of the Earth Netherlands, where she led a climate court case against Shell filed on behalf of over 17,000 people. Um, and as I mentioned before that she worked with us at ODI. So it's a pleasure to be sharing the platform with you um, today, Larry. Uh, and I want to ask you, as I mentioned, about the Glasgow Climate Pact, the agreement reached um, around the Glasgow uh, UNFCCC Climate Summit in uh, COP26 a couple of years ago, and what implications that might have for us to sort of reignite the multilateral process and international process around efforts to phase out fossil fuel subsidies. So can you tell us a bit more about the strengths and limitations of the UNFCCC um, with respect to its influence over subsidy reform 
And can this commitment be used to re-inject the urgency and to catalyze action on phasing out fossil fuel subsidies, which is a, a clear requirement for us to meet our climate targets? Uh, thanks, Ipek, and thanks so much for having me. I'm very honored to join uh, this distinguished panel. Um, so I'm going to start by underlining the significance of the UNFCCC commitment. Um, as Daphne already mentioned, fossil fuel subsidies increased to almost um, 1 trillion US dollars in 2022. Um, and this is in part due to surging energy prices. Um, on top of that, G20 countries and the MDBs continue to provide $55 billion a year in development and export finance to new fossil fuel projects. And this is almost two times their support for clean energy. Um, meanwhile, fossil fuel companies have been making record profits. And the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says they are feasting on hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies and windfall profits, while households' budgets shrink and our planet burns. So fossil fuel subsidies, as we've heard today, clearly go against a, a just and equitable transition. Uh, they are fundamentally incompatible with the goals of the Paris Agreement, including Article 21C. And I'll move to the next slide here. Um, Article 21C uh, calls for making finance flows consistent with climate resilient development. And in this respect, the UNFCCC commitment to phase out fossil fuel subsidies is welcome. But it is notable that after almost 30 years of UNFCCC negotiations, this was the first time that fossil fuels, the leading cause of the climate crisis, were explicitly named in the cover text. And it should also be recognized that this is not the first commitment to end fossil fuel subsidies. The G20 already made this commitment over 10 years ago, and the G7 have since made the same commitment. And in 2010, a group of countries launched um, a Friends of Fossil Fuel Subsidy Reform Initiative. And yet we have not really seen the required action on this agenda, at least not at the scale that we need to see it. And the reason that reform is not happening at the scale required is not necessarily because of a lack of commitments or a lack of research, a lack of guidelines that, ex guidelines that exist that can guide reforms. It's really because of a lack of political will and vested interests. Um, countries have in the past delayed concrete action, action on this agenda by endlessly debating definitions of fossil fuel subsidies. And in the G20 and APEC peer review processes, Countries have argued that their fossil fuel subsidies are efficient because they support economic competitiveness or protect poor households. But to remain competitive through the transition, industries will, of course, need to decarbonize. And as we've also heard from the other speakers, protecting poor households can often be achieved more effectively through other social protection measures. Um, the good news is that we can really surpass this definitional debate as there is an internationally agreed subsidy definition adopted at the WTO and UNEP has developed a methodology for measuring subsidies on the basis of it. So yeah, how do we now re-inject urgency and catalyze action? Uh, public pressure really helps build the needed political will. Um, as we're now also seeing in the Netherlands, where after years of reports and stakeholder dialogues, Extinction Rebellion has started to block roads to protest fossil fuel subsidies, bringing the topic really back on top of the political agenda. And countries with political will also have an opportunity to adopt comprehensive roadmaps for country level reforms that respond to kind of needs at the country level. 
with urgent timeframes and um, any annually report on progress made. And they can also join with others that want to lead by example. And a similar uh, First Movers um, initiative um, that was launched on the sidelines of the UNFCCC has already shown success in bringing down fossil fuel support. In Glasgow, 39 countries and institutions, including some of the largest historic fossil fuel financiers like Canada and the US, committed to end international public finance for fossil fuels by the end of 2022, and instead prioritized their public finance for clean energy. And the G7 then adopted a near identical commitment. And this initiative is already shifting uh, billions out of fossil fuels and into clean energy. And if all signatories make through on their commitments, and we're still waiting on a few countries, such as Germany and Italy, the US and Japan to deliver, um, if they all follow through on their commitment, they can increase their clean energy support to 37 billion uh, US dollars a year. And that sum is sufficient to close the clean energy access finance gap. Um, and as a next step, these signatories uh, can and should expand their efforts by addressing domestic fossil fuel subsidies. Um, so a small but mighty group of countries that lead uh, by example have an opportunity um, to encourage others to follow suit and ensure that strong principles uh, get adopted uh, to ensure that subsidies are re redirected in support of a just energy transition and also to ensure that um, new uh, subsidies to technologies labeled as green, but that in practice extend the lifetime of fossil fuels, such as fossil hydrogen, ammonia, or CCS, get avoided. Um, there's also an opportunity to ensure that ending fossil fuel subsidies and finance alongside other fiscal reform measures, such as debt can cancellation and raising windfall taxes, are recognized as an opportunity to implement implement Article 21C and raise funds for clean energy access, just energy transition packages, climate finance and loss and damage. And there is currently a lot of momentum uh, behind global financial system reform and the shift out of dirty energy finance um, and to clean should really be part of uh, these discussions. And finally, I'd say that if countries um, uh, continue to delay Another way to re-inject urgency is climate litigation, uh, which is on the rise globally. Um, and I'll wrap up there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Larry. Um, and thank you for kind of reminding us of these years and years of commitments and the lack of um, movement and the lack of, uh, lack of um, sort of meeting those commitments at country level due to various excuses and um and circumstances, including uh, the recent sort of crises and so on. Um, so at this point, I'd like to open up for uh, some broader questions. I think um, we have already got a few questions from our audience members, but feel free to add them into the chat box, both addressing some of the country examples that uh, Zira and Ganesh talked about in the case of Nigeria and, and Sri Lanka, but also looking at the international experience through the, the work of the, the World Bank, through the, the recent progress that's been made by the WTO in, in, case, in the case of the fishery subsidies and what that might mean for further progress on other subsidies, um, and also thinking through about the sort of landmark Glasgow uh, climate pact and its inclusion of not only fossil fuel subsidies, but 
fossil fuels for the first time in the cover letter of um, uh, of uh, UNFCCC um, a sort of uh, cover decision. What does that mean in terms of the international processes? Are we really seeing some unprecedented movement at the, at those levels that are able to um, put credibility and urgency to these commitments at the international level, which will have ramifications at national level, or are they just words on paper because the, the pressure is there for them to be on paper, but actually when it comes to kind of national action, the, the constraints do remain um, such as, you know, the, the vested interests and, and the, the powerful um, stakeholders that are opposing these reforms in addition to the complexity and the challenges of actually implementing them, uh, such as in some of the ways that uh, Zira and Ganesh and Defna outlined as well. So um, I think we are awaiting for a few questions to come in from the audience. We do have a couple of questions, so let me kick off with those. I think, um, I don't know if we have Ganesh back now. I think he's just trying to rejoin. Um, in the meantime, there is a question for uh, Defne looking at the, the experience of the world map, uh, the World Bank and the SMAP facility in different countries. Um, so one of our audience members would like to know if there are specific cases um, and more details you can share where the, the distortions were minimized and governments were able to design and tailor reforms well. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of examples, but maybe give us some of the specific things that you think they were able to do well to, to make sure that um, the implementation was successful. You mentioned the Ukraine example um, and uh, a few other countries. So maybe some of the details from those would be really valuable to hear. Thank you, Pick. Sure. Um, first, uh, sort of a disclaimer, context setting. Success is relative. Countries that have reformed successfully went back and reversed them a few years later. So due to macro fiscal pressures or internal crises. So it's the main takeaway I'd like to leave you with. There is a lot of technical hard work to be done and success is possible depending on the objectives that the government set for themselves, but this will change over time. So continued engagement on this topic, doing the hard technical work that needs to be done is very important. In the case of social protection, improving the targeting approaches over time making sure the government knows where the poor are, who the poor are, where they're located, to find better spatial and uh, income-based uh, targeting mechanisms to make sure the benefits reach those who need it. And no social protection mechanism, no cash transfer mechanism is perfect because in the end, it depends on the quality of the information you have to know who the poor are and needs evolve over time. So that's the general context setting. Even, and also in the recent crisis, the 2022 crisis, showed that though the countries of successful reformers went ahead and reversed it. Those that were planning to reform held up on their reforms because they had to protect. And for the first time, countries that never subsidized fossil fuels started subsidizing them. For instance, Japan introduced a fuel subsidy that cost something in the order of $2 billion a year, if I'm not mistaken, some significant magnitude, a country that never did this. So there will be external shocks that will test everybody's ambition and ability to act based on their ambition. So with that, let me just um, talk about some of the examples Ipek, uh, I touched upon earlier. So Dominican Republic, um, they, this is the outcome of a multi-year progress that is a reform process that's ongoing still. First through the um, Bonagas and Bonalus schemes, which target gas and electricity subsidies and provided um, targeted subsidies to poor 
households based on income and uh, welfare targeting mechanisms. And um, over time, these were integrated into Solidaridad, which is the national um, social protection program. And this was a very good example of how this was done, being starting small, gradually integrating programs and introducing new reforms to help the programs and their coverage reach scale. So as I said, the government spent a lot of time understanding who was going to be impacted from these reforms and develop workable mitigation measures and understanding the fiscal cost of different options. And over time, the government really focused on building supportive coalitions and building trust with the government, with, with, the, with their counterpart, with the citizens by delivering on the benefits they're promised. So similarly, in Jordan's 2012 fuel subsidy reform that I mentioned, this built on past reform efforts that did not necessarily go so well or couldn't or were not implementable due to external conditions. But they drew on that ex uh, past experience to improve the reform, the design of the mitigation measures, and build in compensatory cash transfers to their fuel price increases. And ahead of the 2012 fuel price increases, the government provided a targeted cash transfer to the beneficiaries. So this was a tangible benefit was delivered before the actual price increase in this case. And then then this was very carefully messaged through a whole of government approach with key stakeholders communicating consistently and clearly to the citizens what, what that's important and with political support from the highest levels of government. And the robust communication campaign really helped both in terms of messaging, but also helping uptake of the campaign of the social protection program because putting a, a social protection or cash transfer mechanism in place is just one step then it is very important to communicate to uh, to citizens and beneficiaries how they come and use these benefits and trying to keeping things as simple as possible. And in Jordan's case, also one thing was I talked about the importance of targeting the right people. What they did very well was they leveraged existing targeting mechanism for different social social protection systems. Where they didn't have data, they were pragmatic and you looked at asset ownership to limit leakage and uh, make sure the poorer got the benefit. So it was a very practi practical and pragmatic uh, reform at the time. And oh, since then, the government has been strengthening their social registries and protection mechanisms to then improve the targeting approaches and use different delivery mechanisms. So this is about refining, being pragmatic at first and refining design over time. And I mentioned the Ukraine's housing utility subsidies program, which is an often cite, cited success case in the way that they have achieved it. Again, the government used an existing subsidy program to deliver mitigation measures that accompany the very significant tariff increase that had to happen because there were extensive macrofiscal pressure and the, basically the subsidies could not be afforded anymore. And they used the housing utility subsidy program as a primary mechanism to deliver benefits for heating, gas and electricity to citizens. And this was again complemented by very visible and well-designed communication outreach campaign. And then over time, they refined, again, the targeting, the delivery mechanisms, and scaled up the support and coverage of the mechanism changed over time. And beyond these, let me mention two more examples for colleagues that are interested to look up. One is Iran's cash transfer program where they did a, they reformed fuel prices and it was accompanied by very generous, if I'm not mistaken, almost 98%, 99% coverage of cash transfers, again, delivered before the benefit, before the price increase was happening. But again, at this point, it's important to highlight the fiscal trade-offs. So the more generous 
the benefits are, the higher the coverage, the higher the fiscal costs. So policymakers will be facing some trade-offs while designing these mechanisms. And another good example is Egypt's subsidy reform from 2014 to 18 over a series of um, efforts and price increases and also tariff methodology adjustments so that price increases are not one-off political decisions, but they are built into the way this sector operates. So it does it takes the political burden off of the government once the, this is an automated mechanism and it's more transparent and it's more predictable. This also then helps users adjust. So I hope these are helpful examples. Thank you very much, Daphne. Indeed, there's, there's a range of really um, important lessons learned uh, from, from those uh, particular case studies. But all this makes me realize how complex uh, it is to reform subsidies and, and the administrative capacity required to implement these um, sort of price changes over time and making sure they're sequenced properly to make sure that the benefits are, are seen before the, the price increase comes into the picture. And that does make me think of some of the country examples. Um, Zira, as you know, on, on some of our subsidies research in Nigeria, this was one of the challenges when, when the, the administrative capacity uh, is not in place. It's very challenging to, to make sure that the support reaches, especially the most vulnerable consumers, before um, the the sort of price increases take place. So, what are some of the things that you can recommend from Nigeria's perspective, being realistic about what a complex and challenging process this is, both in terms of prioritization, but also, you know, you know, we do have the incoming administration in Nigeria. You know, what are some things that the Nigerian government and working with the the relevant stakeholders to support them can do um, at this stage to to start restart the reform process uh, and one that will have hopefully uh, successful outcomes. Uh, thank you, Ipek. With with um, <clears throat> subsidy removal, I think the previous speaker definitely already mentioned that we need to have a better evidence base to ensure that the palliative measures are effectively delivered. So in Nigeria, for example, we, we use petrol for two main things. One is to you know, fuel our cars, but the second is to fuel our household generators. So millions of people use household generators to, pro to generate backup electricity when the grid um, power is insufficient. And we, and, and we need to understand where it's going, uh, the patterns of consumption, who needs it the most, and then target uh, the reinvestment programs to those people that need it the most. Then the second point on the political transition. From my discussions, you can tell that subsidy removal is not a new topic in Nigeria. It has happened time and time again and has been reversed. And if I did, like up until this point in 2022, for example, we spent seven billion dollars in subsidies so it's it's still in place now what is new is that for the first time uh, we have a law that actually mandates liberal pricing of petroleum products so the petroleum industry act uh, that was passed into law i believe in 2021 um sets you know mandates uh, for liberal pricing of petroleum products so there's a strong legal uh, or legislative basis for the new administration to work off in, you know, in terms of um, implementing the, the subsidy reforms that we're expecting. And then finally, I'll just say that 
for the first time also in our history, uh, subsidies have become a political topic where candidates, all the three leading candidates in the last election that happened in February, all had something to say about subsidies. Thankfully, all of them said they would do away with subsidies. Um, but it's 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 it, it's an evidence of a changing um, tone of public discourse on the topic, and and it's good to see that the new administration has already stated that it's part of their priorities um, once they come into office. Uh, so I'll stop here. Thank you, Zira. That that is indeed promising to to hear that there is a, a political opening um, for progress on this. Uh, Ganesh, let me uh, turn to you. There is a question from our audience, which was uh, posted on the chat earlier, about sharing any broad advice for countries' efforts on tackling subsidy reform, um, balancing the social and economic, and if I may take chair's priorities to add to that, environmental and um, and climate goals to that. Uh, and it is it is a very challenging process as we're exploring together. It's incredibly complex, the the sort of analysis and evidence that needs to be there to to, to enact these reforms in a way um, that's going to help them be sustainable and, and equitable and so on and, and politically palatable. Um, but any advice from your experience and, and your uh, work in, in Sri Lanka, but also across the board on um, elements that you want to kind of, that we discussed that you want to support or um, other um, perspectives you want to bring in on that? So I think this idea of trying to do it in a crisis like we are in Sri Lanka at the moment and, and where this is also being seen as externally imposed by the IMF in our case uh, makes things very difficult to be palatable, right? So, so that's the first kind of point. So crisis is one and externally imposed is, is another. And meet the World Bank, meet the ADB, you know, these actors are not in great credibility in many developing countries because these are seen as causing hardship uh, to the people. So um, I think the first thing is really uh, to think about trying to do some of these adjustments in normal times. You know, I think I come back to that message where the fiscal space exists and where you can have a homegrown team that tries to assess the, 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 the kind of spending pattern and what kind of tax revenue uh, is needed. Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, one of the really strong things that comes out of Sri Lanka, but also Bangladesh and Pakistan and a whole host of other countries in Asian region uh, is that the macro has not been so well managed. So you try to do this in good times and you try to think about what the social contract is and, and you have to try to get buy-in for that. And then I think you can get to the technical level matters. I think our colleagues from the World Bank and others were talking about technical matters, but they don't really fundamentally answer the political question. You know, If you start off in the Sri Lankan case, as we did, with a very high level of subsidies, right, which had massive poverty effects, right? They reduced poverty significantly, along with trickle-down theory uh, and a targeted poverty program. Then to take it all away is, is really difficult, you know. Um, so you've got to really forge a new political contract. Um, and in our case, we are being very fundamental about it because of the crisis to say that, you know, we, we, we can't afford this anymore uh, without the growth, right? Um, so I think, I think you've got to find the fiscal space, you've got to do it in, in growth times. And then the third element, our colleague from Nigeria will also understand, you have to have very strong public trust. And I think the thing we haven't talked about is the elephant in the room, which is a strong anti-corruption framework. You know, um, when you start taking away subsidies, right, people automatically assume that politicians are pocketing the difference. Right? And the poor are really not getting the benefit and it's the rich and the politicians. And so, 
you really need a very credible anti-corruption framework, uh, which is again nationally designed. It should not be externally imposed. Uh, that, that, that really sets in the process for the reform. So these are the pragmatic things I come with. Um, I hope this makes some sense. Thanks very much, Ganesh, and also for underlying some of those key points that you made earlier about this challenge of subsidy reform often being imposed at a time of crisis, but that and, and externally, uh, but actually that being the complete wrong starting point when it's much, much more successful to do it in, in normal times and when there is a demand from the country and a realization that this is um, the, the right thing to do for all kinds of social, economic um, and other purposes. Um, let me take a, one of the other audience questions, uh, which is directed to you all, but perhaps the second set of panelists focusing on the more international perspectives. So um, one of our audience members said it was very interesting to hear about previous commitments from the G20, G7 and the UNFCCC um, and whether there are any ways of enforcing these commitments uh, compared to the WTO. Can you suggest other more influential multilateral bodies um, who should be paying more attention to sort of badly designed subsidies and I guess putting a finger on them and, 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 and making sure that um, they put in place similar commitments or um, an effort to, to help reform them. So maybe we could discuss a little bit, uh, Lowry and, and Jody, if you want to, the, the, the implications of the commitments from the G20, G7, UNFCCC and WTO and, and any other uh, influential multilateral bodies that you think should be paying attention to this issue. Sure, I mean, I'm happy just to jump in just with immediate thoughts if that helps, Ibeg. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what immediately comes to mind is, I mean, it's not, I mean, in terms of the question of enforcement, I mean, I think that's always, that's particularly tricky um, if we look at the WTO currently. Um, but I would go back to the SDGs and that, that framework, because it does include, you know, there's reference there that is made to fossil fuel subsidies, for example. Um, you know, and we, we're not so far off 2030. So I think, you know, that is the, the kind of the, the global mandate that all development partners are kind of working towards. Um, so I think it's really, you know, we've got we've got these global mandates. Um, and so we need agencies, agencies, agencies to act and to assist in, in capacity um, building efforts as well. Um, what always comes to my mind is the OECD, but of course, it's, you know, it's, that's a rich countries club. Um, but they historically, they did a lot of work on agricultural subsidies, which was very helpful. More recently, they've moved into to fishery subsidies as well. Um, UNCTAD has been very helpful, um, thinking about fisheries subsidies um, also. Um, but that, you know, just to, to, to kind of boost the analytical capacity that, you know, the some of the constraints that um, Ganesh was mentioning, I think there is, there certainly does seem to be a bit of a, a gap there. Um, I mean, just reflecting on the the example of, of the fisheries agreement and, and the text there, I mean, within the text, there's agreement to provide support for technical assistance and capacity building. So I think, you know, it is recognised if you're reforming subsidies, your regime, you will need some assistance. Um, so that's now the WHO has this fund, it's, it's seeking pledges to try to, to implement that. Um, perhaps if there was greater momentum on fossil fuel subsidies, a similar kind of approach, you could envisage that 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 could take place as well. Um, yeah, but I guess for me, it's always coming back to that, you know, we've got the overarching framework, 
you know the SDGs, the, the the goals there. So we really need you know kind of agencies agencies to move, but agencies themselves need to be properly resourced. Thank you very much, Larry. Do you want to add something? Um, yeah, um, I'd like to add that one thing that is important to consider here is that many of the international commitments made to end fossil fuel subsidies are not time bound. So the G7 has committed to end fossil fuel subsidies by the end of 2025, and it has also committed to end international public finance for fossil fuels by the end of 2022, so by the end of last year. Uh, but the G20 and the UNFCCC commitments are not time bound. And what we've seen is that in uh, the efforts that have been made uh, since those commitments were launched, the focus has largely been on increasing transparency through peer review processes and less on uh, kind of publishing um, comprehensive plans or roadmaps for reforms with um, uh, timelines. Um, and uh, there's also not been a lot of reporting on, on progress made uh, towards these commitments. So accountability has definitely been an issue. And uh, simply said, I'd say that at the moment, it's too easy for countries to proclaim climate leadership while they continue to prop up yeah, fossil fuels with, with public money. Um, one interesting um, thing that we've recently seen is that the UNSGS, uh, so Antonio Guterres, has signaled that he is thinking about an entry ticket for the UN Climate Summit in September. And that would mean that only those countries that actually show that they're implementing the commitments that they've made uh, can attend. And I think that it's this type of diplomatic pressure that is also needed to make sure that countries, um, yeah, also demonstrate the political will and, and, and act on these agendas. Thank you very much, Larry. Absolutely. That's the kind of pressure that we need more of. Uh, let me give um, a minute or so to Defne as well from the international perspective to add anything before we start to wrap up the event. Thank you, Pick. I just wanted to mention a couple more groups that the question asked about. What other fora are there internationally? The Coalition of Finance Ministers for Climate Action is a critical body bringing together finance ministers around the world. And I think they are really motivated in different work streams to do many things. And also France for Fossil Fuel Subsidy Reform, a group of governments, again, that was mentioned. And APEC. APEC's uh, New Zealand chair was very active on the topic of fossil fuel subsidies on subsidies in general. And um, in addition, of course, there are the climate finance mechanism, Article 6 mechanisms that can facilitate action on this ground. So I want to emphasize, yes, there is enforcement of commitments, but that what matters is also action beyond some supranational enforcement of something. And the action has to happen on the country level. And the governments need to own this agenda. Ganesh, I absolutely agree without government ownership, external pressure cannot achieve things. So. It's important when the governments are willing to take action, they realize the fiscal cost to themselves and to their development priorities that there is technical support for them to go and deliver on these. And again, I will come back to my point about details, knowing who the poor are so you can target them, for instance, or knowing the exact fiscal cost of these subsidies or knowing where your subsidies are, because sometimes these subsidies are hidden. They're not even showing up on budgets. So it's important to support transparency initiatives data collection, visibility of information on subsidy, which are also our colleagues at OECD, IEA and IMF are doing an excellent job publishing yearly figures on subsidies. So this kind of transparency work has to be done. So there's work at different levels that need to be done. And at the World Bank and ESMA, what we're trying to support is country level technical and capacity building to support governments who wish to take action on 
how to get there. So thank you. Thanks very much, Daphne. I think it's impossible to wrap up such a rich discussion, but I think um, I have to allude to some of the points that you've all raised around the importance of aligning national priorities with the international support, the technical support and the financing to make such a challenging, uh, but ultimately a very rewarding process uh, of fossil fuel subsidy reform and broader subsidy reform successful. Um, the need to accompany the technical work with a focus on the what we've called the, the sort of elements around the politics, um, the evidence and analysis around who's going to benefit, who's going to lose from the, the transition, how to support the most vulnerable, how to design policies that are iterative, timely, and sensitive to the needs of a specific country at a specific time. Um, I think, um, you know, there's fantastic work that's being done at the international level, which is signaling commitments and putting unprecedented uh, things on the table, on paper, but ultimately it's about delim- delivering it at the country level that's going to help us meet our climate development, um, economic and social targets. So with that, I'm, I thank you all, our panelists, so much for making the time today to share your wealth of experience and for all the fantastic work that you continue to do on this topic uh, with your country partners and in th- with the international community. And thank you all to our audience members for joining us uh, at this really critical time and hopefully where we can see a momentum for subsidy reform at national and international level. We hope you will continue to follow our work at ODI and the work of our um, member, our panelists in the the great capacities that they have in their organisations in pushing forward this agenda please feel free to continue to share this event. We will have the recording uh, in a shareable version that will be live um, uh, uploaded in the next couple of days and to continue to follow ODI's public events on this topic and beyond. Thank you very much and hope you all have a great rest of your day, evening. Thanks for joining.